unique and unprecedented time on our planet. Over the course of the next few weeks, we will be attempting to release our sermons in time for each Sunday morning, as well as exploring other methods that will connect us with you. I want to mention that if at any point during this time of social isolation, that if you're in need of assistance in any way, please don't hesitate to reach out to the church for help. I'm going to be in the office most days. Uh, in case you haven't heard, we have suspended our programming up until April 19th. The elders and myself will at that point reassess where we are at before that date to make a decision on best practices for the church after that. If you would like to receive updates from the church, don't hesitate to contact the church and we will add you to our email list or you can follow us on our Facebook page and we'll have posts there as well. Well, over the last couple of Sundays, we have started the book of Ephesians. Today, we will finish up chapter 1. This message, though, will probably feel a little different than most for multiple reasons, but one of the main ones is that during this message, I'd like to invite us into some interaction together, where I will be inviting you to pause the message at certain points and spend some time writing down thoughts, reflections, and responses, as well as inviting you into prayer. This is a unique opportunity for us to interact with the message while it is happening. The first thing I'll ask you to do now, though, is to pause this message, grab a pen, some paper, and your Bible, and then come join us again. Okay, so now that we have our stuff in front of us, I'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, from the North American Standard Bible. Paul writes, For this reason... Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. As we conclude chapter 1, I'd like us to consider the overarching theme of chapter 1 is actually a lengthy prayer that Paul has written down to express his heart for Jesus and for them as the Ephesian church. If we look at this entire chapter, we see that Paul has, actually, has not actually addressed the Ephesian church at all yet. It's almost as though he has written this as a prayer about them instead of a letter directed to them. I was reminded of a, of a fisherman who was at sea with his companions. And at that point, a storm came up and threatened to sink their ship. And his friends begged this, this fisherman to pray. And he said, it's been a long time since I've done that or even entered a church. At their insistence, however, he finally cried out to God. He said, Oh Lord, I haven't asked anything of you in 15 years. If you help us now and bring us safely to land, I promise I won't bother you again for another 15. This week, reflecting on our planet's emotional, spiritual, emotional, and relational state, I think there are a lot of people who might be praying more now than they have in a long time, where they can relate to the fishermen. During this climate of fear and concern and uncertainty, many people around us have been left wondering what we should be doing in the midst of everything going on around us. For many people, I suspect they have turned to prayer as a way to alleviate their fears, 
and the threats of illness for themselves or the ones they love. And maybe there's some who haven't talked or even considered God for the last 15 years, but are now suddenly calling out to God. Paul, though, in chapter 1, I think gives us a good template of how we can approach prayer today when things around us seem confusing and uncertain and frankly at times scary. Paul starts the first half of chapter 1 acknowledging the character and attributes and work of God throughout history. We actually see Jesus do the same thing in Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer when Jesus says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In Ephesians 1, Paul spends the first portion of the letter worshiping God. Now, if you missed the first half of our teaching on chapter 1, we explored that over the last two weeks. So you can go back and listen to what it was that Paul was so excited about. But then Paul uses the last half of chapter 1 to bring forward a series of requests to God on behalf of the Ephesians. And what we see from this prayer in chapter 1 is this healthy balance of praising God and petitioning to God. As we consider the role that gratitude has in our lives, when we practice it, it shifts our minds from thinking about us and our circumstances to thinking about the ones who controls those circumstances. This is an important distinction because one of the core values that we have as people, I think, is often to resist the posture of gratitude. Where it doesn't take much to shift our mindsets, off, mindsets into frustration or resentment or bitterness or self-entitlement. Which means that we have to be really intentional about choosing to be thankful. Paul provides a strong argument as to what we can be thankful for. He shifts our focus from our circumstances and situation to something larger and eternal. I think for most of us right now, it's really easy to look around at our circumstances and the world around us and develop a stance of fear and anxiety. We live in times where the reality of sickness and death seem to be very real things. But what we see modeled to us from Paul is an awareness of his circumstances where he says, yes, they exist. He's not denying that for anyone, including himself. But what we see Paul do is he focuses on what's eternal rather than what's external. Paul focuses on what's eternal rather than what's external. He reminds us that what's eternal never changes. It's always be, it will always be that way. The eternalness of God's love. The eternalness of God's grace, the eternalness of God's redemptive plan never changes. The eternal pieces of our lives are always moving and sh- the external pieces of our lives are always moving and shifting. And our lives seem to swirl around at a frenetic pace. And we end up, as a result, we end up using all of our emotional, physical, relational, and spiritual resources that we can muster, but eventually though it runs out. And as a result, we end up overwhelmed with everything going on around us. When we begin to adjust our posture off of our externals and onto the eternal in Jesus, we are reminded that even though the world around us seems to be in such turmoil, Jesus remains the same. And that the external doesn't change the eternal. So how do we do that? How do we develop a posture of eternity rather than our externals. Well, at this point, I'd like to invite you into an exercise to help us posture ourselves so that we can focus on eternity. 
So at this point, take a few minutes individually, if you're listening with a group or with your family, pause this message, and I'd like you to do two things. One, make a list of qualities and characteristics that you would use to describe God. So make a list of qualities and characteristics you would use to describe God. After you have made that list, answer this question. What is it about these qualities or characteristics that help you to focus on the eternal today? What is it about these qualities or characteristics that help you to focus on the eternalness of today? So you can pause now. Now as Paul continues his prayer in chapter 1, he shifts from the eternal characteristics and qualities and outworking of God's redemptive plan to the people he is writing to. And Paul continues to express his prayer, where the first thing we see in verse 16 from Paul is an expression of gratitude for the people within the Ephesian church. Remembering that this letter was going to be circulated through different church communities throughout Ephesus, it's likely that Paul actually didn't know every church specifically, but that the reputation that the Ephesian church had, Paul Paul felt was worth celebrating. In the last half of chapter 1, Paul shifts his prayer from praise onto petition. Now petition is just a word we, petition is a word we, we see used only three times in the New Testament but it means to make a strong request. The one time we actually see it uh, in practice is when the crowd is petitioning to, to Pontius Pilate to crucify Jesus. It's this, it's this deep longing, this, this bold request being made. The other two times that we see it in the New Testament is in the context of prayer, where, where, we, see this, where, we, where we are invited to make these bold requests. Petition is often one of those expressions that I think probably comes naturally to most of us. Because it's easy to identify the needs or wants in our lives that we have no problem asking for. Whether it's our finances, our job, our health, or our families, the list can go on and on in terms of what things we want and need. Petitionary prayers are acknowledging that God is the provider of all things, which means that he has the capability of providing for our finances, for our employment, our health, for our families, or others. Most people who worship any expression of God would not argue that God has the ability to answer our prayers. Fundamentally, that's one of the main characteristics that make God who He is. He is all-powerful. He can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants, to whoever He wants. The struggle, of course, is that the Bible... Sorry, the struggle, of course, is that the God we read in the Bible is not a genie or a vending machine where we say a prayer and make a specific request and suddenly God is compelled to satisfy that request. Instead, the struggle with petitionary prayer is that often we make these prayers with one perspective in mind, our own. We look at our externals, and that's often how we base our prayers which I think is why it's important to focus our attention, focus our heart on the eternal first, like Paul does in the first half of chapter 1. Because when we focus on the eternal, it broadens our perspective beyond ourselves. Here's my contention with petitionary prayers. I pray this prayers of requests, and if I'm honest with myself, I'm often skeptical that any of them will actually happen. Not because I'm skeptical of God, 
but I'm skeptical of myself. I don't feel like I have enough faith to really believe that God will do the things I ask Him to do. I also don't feel like my will and desire is usually in line with God's. And I conclude that God will just do whatever aligns with His will over mine, regardless of what I pray. Some of you may remember a movie called Bruce Almighty that came out in 2003. The premise of the movie is that God decides he is going on vacation. And he has left Bruce in charge of the planet. And so he has been given all of the divine authority that, that God has. One of these responsibilities is to answer prayers. Now initially, Bruce is completely overwhelmed by the sheer enormity of the prayer requests of everyone on the planet. And decides the simplest way to address this is by saying yes to everything. Well, the result is catastrophic. As everyone gets what they want, there's no order in the world. And one prayer after another, the world unravels as the will of humanity isn't governed in any sort of manner. It becomes a good reminder for us that although petition at its root is asking for the desires of our heart, our heart, however, needs to be aligned with God's. Jesus in Matthew 7 says this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks the door will be open. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your, will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? As we consider this specific passage in the context of petitionary prayers, Jesus is inviting us to pray for the impossible. Why? Because I think it acknowledges a dependence on him to provide for all things. It acknowledges an awareness that God can meet our needs, regardless of whether we think it's possible or not. It also it acknowledges a submission to allow God to meet that need instead of us trying to do it. Let me say that all those again. Petitionary prayers acknowledge a dependence on Him to provide for all things. They all, it, petitionary prayers also acknowledge an awareness that God can meet that need. And lastly, petitionary prayers acknowledge a submission to allow God to meet that need instead of us trying to do it. Petitionary prayers acknowledge that we can't meet that need on our own. That we are limited in what we have to offer and that by ourselves we cannot meet all of our needs. Petitionary prayers acknowledge our own limitations but then point us to Jesus who can provide anything we ask for. I wonder what our prayers would look like if we prayed outrageous prayers that embraced the characteristics that we believe about God. Petition prayers then become expressions of faith, where we declare and confess the depth of our faith in Jesus through our requests. And what we see from Jesus in Matthew 7 is that God has the capacity to provide for any and all things. Now, in Ephesians chapter 1, 17 and 18, Paul prays for wisdom and that the Ephesians would know God more. Now, in that context, philosophy and knowledge were high values to pursue throughout the Mediterranean. 
But Paul is praying for a very specific form of knowledge and enlightenment where we see that his petition isn't a vague, generic prayer, but Paul is praying for something very specific with the anticipation that it will happen. Now the Greek word that Paul is using here when he prays for the, for the Ephesians, that they would know God better in verse 17, means that they would have an understanding of all things related to the ethical and the divine. That knowing God is a result of wisdom and revelation. That it wasn't, that's not just information or just a, having an ethereal awareness of who God is, but it's, that, but it's a transformation that, would, that occurs. That Jesus isn't just about spiritual understanding, but he shapes the way we live and gives us a new ethic to live out. Paul continues in verse 18 and prays for enlightenment for the Ephesians. This meant to have an understanding of God's role in their lives so that they would see his power as well. That God would transform them from the inside out. Paul's petitionary prayer wasn't just that God would transform the Ephesians, but that they would have the same faith that he does. That they would long for, the, for transformation in others as well, from the inside out. The same way that Paul longs for that transformation to happen with the Ephesians. As a result, this prayer begins to reveal several things in the last half of chapter 1 about petitionary prayer. One, that it's Christ-centric. Where we see that it's about the values and the heart of Jesus, it reflects Jesus. Two, that petitionary prayer is others-centric. Where, is, where Paul is praying for what's best for others rather than himself. And three, Petitionary prayer is mission-centric. Where Paul is praying a prayer of multiplication. He is praying that God's kingdom would be broadened as the Ephesians open themselves up to the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Now as we conclude this message today, I would like to invite us into one more prayer time. I recognize that we all have a tremendous amount of needs in our lives. I think it's important to acknowledge that and not minimize that. Between COVID-19, concerns of employment and financial situations, life just seems to place a lot of demands on each of us individually and collectively. So this morning, as we consider our response to this passage in Ephesians, as we consider how do we pray today, take a few minutes individually if you're with a fam your family, do it together. Again, pause this message and spend some time praying for the people in your life. If, if it's helpful to make a list, then do that. Take as long as you need to. But pray for your neighbors. Pray that God would give you wisdom on how you can care for them during this time of social distancing. What is your response so that you can be mission-centric? But also pray for your family and the areas of your lives where God might need to be at work in your life where God might need to be at work in others' lives. So go ahead and pause it now, and then come back. Well, I hope that those two prayer exercises were meaningful for you. And as we conclude our time together, I thought I would leave you with two reflective questions that you could discuss around the table, if you could reflect on personally. So here's the two questions. First question. What is it about Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1 
that resonated with you? What stuck out for you? So what is it about Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1 that resonated with you? And then question two. How might Paul have helped you pray today? How might Paul have helped you pray today? Well, hopefully you're you're all doing well. Stay safe, everyone. Have a great week, and we'll see you next week.